Welcome to the Sports Grad Podcast, where we empower you with the answers to your burning questions to accelerate your career into the sports industry. We are your hosts, Melbourne-based sports administrators, Ruben Williams and Ryan Walker. Join us as we share unique and personal examples as well as relatable information and deliver them to you in bite-sized, fluff-free episodes. Want to swipe our signature framework to add awesome experience to your resume? Download our free ebook, Four Steps to Create Outstanding Work Experience in Sport, at sportsgrad.com.au. Now sit back, relax, enjoy the show, and don't forget to hit subscribe so you don't miss any of our latest episodes released every Tuesday and Thursday. Hello and welcome to the Sports Grad Podcast. My name is Ruben Williams, and with me, as always, is the Red Ryan Walker. How are you, Ryan? I'm very hot, Ruse, but I'm very well on my end. Um, the reason for the red call, I would imagine, is because I'm quite red right now. Um, and the reason for that being it's it's summer, baby, summer, and it's hot and I've been for a run and now I'm back and I'm yet to cool down. Um, but, no, it's great to see your face and I'm very excited for this episode. Um, a lot of great stuff to chat through. But how, how are you, more importantly? I'm very well. I'm I'm not quite as steaming through the microphone as you are, but it's good to know that you're um, taking the time to exercise between work, podcasting, and having a social life. So yeah, absolutely. Um, better to be red than not. Yeah, I'm sure you'd be probably red in a probably an hour's time. Um, you'll be off on your your nightly Strava run. So um, I look forward to seeing the results later tonight on the Strava app. Thank you. Well, very excited for this episode. We're going international again, this time over to the subcontinent. So we'll get into that because today we are talking to Neil Shah about what the East can teach the West about sport. If you are listening for the first time and thinking, what is this show? Who are these two guys? The Sports Grad Podcast is your bite-sized guide to enter the sports industry. I myself am a graduate of Deakin University in Melbourne and Ryan is a graduate of Notre Dame, Australia in Perth. A few years ago, we both made the jump into working at Cricket Australia together and now our aim is to help you do the same in whatever way, shape or form that may be in the sports industry. Now, on to our very special guest crossing live to us from the small town of Mumbai in India. Today, we are chatting with the one and only Neil Shah. Neil started his career at Major League Soccer in New York, where he worked his way up to Director of Fan Development over six years before moving to India to pursue a number of roles in sports marketing and business development. Neil then went on to take on the role of CEO of DSK Shivajans FC, a professional football team that played in India's top division, which also included the Liverpool International Football Academy. These days, Neil oversees new business and sports education at a leading sports agency called India on Track, and alongside it, the Global Institute of Sport Business, India's first internationally certified and industry design sports management institute. Neil, welcome to the Sports Grad Podcast. Thanks so much, Ruben and Red Ryan. Sorry, I I had to do it. (laughs) I thought the red news was not actually from the the sun or anything else, but it was just like, you're so excited. So blushing to to chat with me, but uh, you thought I was blushing that we were again going international and talking (laughs) to such a important guest for the podcast. (laughs) Neil, it's, it's it's a blend of both. We'll we'll say, Um, yeah, I'm, I'm excited. And as is Rubes, I can imagine. 
Clearly, I have no ego. No, I, uh, I, I appreciate that completely. No, it's, uh, it's really nice to be on with you both. Um, you know, Ruben, I've heard you speak in the past and I've listened to your, both your podcast as well for some time. And it's always inspiring and, and fun and engaging. So glad, glad to be on with you all. No, we're, we're, we're very lucky to have you on. So we're excited. Um, first of all, we've never, um, never had someone from, um, Asia before. We've always spoken to people in the US when we've gone international. Tell us about Mumbai and working, working in sport there. Yeah, it's, it's, it's incredible and incredible. And that's a very kind of uh, generic term to say, but it, it, it really is, um, it feels like uh, like no place else in the world because it, it is a convergence of East and West where I think India has a lot of the, it's starting to inculcate a lot of the best practices of the West, it, especially in places like Mumbai or Delhi or Bangalore, Chennai, these bigger cities. But at the same time, it's, it's still the East and it's still developing in a lot of ways, especially the sports industry. So I feel like people like myself and others who work here in the, in the thick of the sports industry get to kind of have our feet in both hemispheres in a lot of ways. And we get, to, you know, we're, we're meeting with the likes of Manchester United or Liverpool FC or La Liga or Major League Baseball or the NBA or WWE talking about ways to grow their business. And at the same time, you're, you're, you're kind of going to these smaller rural areas of India or kind of dealing with things that are foreign to a lot of us who haven't grown up here or even people who have, but you're in different states that things are a little bit different foreign and for, and for them as well so it's fascinating and it's opportunistic and you can create things that didn't exist before so it's a uh, i mean i could write a book about this but it's very very cool to be where i am and where so many of us in the industry are here in india being able to kind of uh, check out the west and the east at the same time definitely a fascinating space and we we constantly hear more about the opportunity that exists in india for leagues all around the world and we'll dive into it more a bit later on but uh you mentioned earlier that uh you know you, you do tune into the podcast which is awesome to hear and i'm sure that no doubt you would have tuned into one of our episodes with lena staropoli who are uh, a former colleague of yours at the mls and i want to start there going right back uh, to your first role in sport at the mls in new york uh from what we know about you previously you know football Soccer was, you know, the only goal in mind in terms of your career and where you wanted to head in that direction. So, first question: How did you get your start in sport? Yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's it's a interesting road, and it actually is probably one of the straightest roads that many people have taken into the industry. And I, I think I was very fortunate. I, I grew up in California. Like many of us growing up, we had a lot of access to play sports. So I played you know football baseball basketball volleyball all of that but for me football was always my my, my real love my, my passion my love my even now it's it's what I love the most in 1995 I was uh, 15 years old so I'm dating myself a bit but I it's really the year that changed my entire life because in 1995 a few, a few things happened one is I went to Europe to play in the Dana Cup in Denmark a youth football tournament and got the opportunity to actually travel internationally for my first time and see what it's like to experience the sport of football globally, which was just eye-opening. Second was that I, um, you know, Major League Soccer was announced, actually. And in MLS was, the you know, after the NASL, MLS came up as this league that after the 
FIFA World Cup in 1994 that the U.S. hosted. Um, it was like this exciting new league that was coming up in 96 or 95 it was announced. So those are two things that happened. The third thing, which was my mother and father decided to invest a lot of money in a career counselor, which is great. Um, I went down to Laguna Beach, California all the time, and I would go meet this career counselor. And they used to do these career aptitude tests, as many have done in the past. And, you know, his spit out that I was supposed to be like an investment banker or a business analyst or some accountancy work. And I remember, thankfully, my mother at the age of 15 decided to throw me into that world and have that conversation so early because I realized I don't want to do any of this. And it was like, when I say straightforward, it was like, well, what do I like the most? What do I, what makes me happy? And all I could think about is how beautiful the beautiful game really is, because it's not just made a difference to me as an individual uh, growing up playing football in so many different, at so many different levels, but even traveling in the around the world and connecting with people um, on and off the pitch. So I made a declaration at that point, at the age of 15, that I'm going to work in professional football and I'm going to work for MLS. Even though the league hadn't even opened up his offices yet, even though the league hadn't had his first kick, but I, I was very clear that if I was going to do it in America, I was going to do it at the highest levels. And from the age of 15 to the age of 22, I just did every internship I could to uh, allow me to learn more about the, the business of, of football and the business of sport. And I moved to London for a year to study and I was just attending a lot of lower division matches to understand fan engagement. And, you know, finally it led me to New York city. It led me in 2002 to standing on 110 East 40 or across the street from 110 East 42nd street, which is basically grand central station in New York. After a couple of unsuccessful tries to get in touch with major league soccer um, over email and other ways, I literally just just staring at their office, and this sounds very creepy, I know, but I guess it all turned out right in the end. I picked up the phone and I just said, I just got, I called the receptionist. And uh, I mean, I called their main desk. I got the receptionist and I just told her my life story. And she was, I guess, inspired. She ended up um, connecting me with the vice president of marketing at the time, uh, Mark Noonan which was weird to go from a guy, a 22 year old just saying, look, I really want to get my foot in the door. I want to add value to major league soccer. I want to help the sport grow. Mark heard me out. He laughed going, why am I talking to somebody who wants an internship role? But he heard me out and he said, look, there might be a position open in special events. I'll have the head of special events call you. He did. Uh, Two weeks later, I had an interview three months later as a coordinator of fan development and the rest is history. So I, what I say is that like, I didn't even look at any other job. I only wanted to work in marketing at major league soccer for, for six years. And I was going to do any single thing I could to get that job. And thankfully that cold call led to what I what eventually was my dream job. That's awesome. There's uh, plenty, to, plenty to unpack there. One, it was, it was great to hear that uh, investing in a career coach is well, well worth that. And, and secondly, uh, <laughs> I, I did not know that the MLS started off the off the back of the the FIFA World Cup. I think that's um, a pretty cool legacy of um, um, of that World Cup. Yeah, yeah, it was actually one of the the mandates for uh, FIFA allowing the US to host the World Cup in '94. Is that by '95 they start a league, a professional league, but uh, it took a little bit longer, so it started in '96. I'm uh, I'm very impressed by that cold call. I think that's uh, <laughs> that that takes guts, and I think people, you know, sometimes struggle to send an email to someone 
sort of a cold email. You, you've just gone up across the road and called the MLS just off off the bat, which is which is quite amazing. And I yeah, I respect that a lot. Um, so what what was it like working in MLS? Sort of once it kicked off, so sort of mid two thousands, I think you you went until um, what did you learn most? Sort of from your first job there. Yeah, it was it was a great experience. I mean, yes, it was my dream job. Yes, I love football, so it was already going to be great. But you know, I, I, this is something I for all the listeners as well. I think it's very natural to want to go when you go to a country. Say you're in India, it's very natural to want to work for the IPL. Uh, if you're in Australia, it's really natural to want to be at the AFL, or you know, you want to be in, in Aussie rules football because that's that's the kind of that's in the culture that's at the t- that's at the highest profile or if you're in the US working at the NFL or the NBA would of course be a dream. I, I take I always take the different road and I, I've been a big believer of the benefits of doing that. I like to be on the, the smaller organizations that you can have a bigger impact. Um, so MLS was only six years old in 2002 when I started. It was a very small group of us in the in New York City working at the league office. There's about 40 of us and I got to work with the likes of Commissioner Don Garber, Ivan Gazidis, who was the deputy commissioner, who's went on to be the chief executive of Arsenal, now chief executive of AC Milan, um, a number of other very big and intelligent people in the sports industry. And to be a 22-year-old in this little team of people getting to grow uh, a professional league in America, really in, uh, for the biggest sport in the world, the most popular sport in the world, football, it was a. It was unbelievable. Every day was a new opportunity to learn something and to kind of yeah, engage in, in 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 something that didn't exist before. So, what I'd say is that yes, it, it had its challenges. There was limited budgets, limited respect of the sport in the league. Um, I'm coordinator of fan development, and there was no fans to go to games all the time. You're playing in a massive American football stadiums with lines a lot of times, so the players weren't as good as European players. Yes, all that existed six years in. But the cool thing was, is that there was all the demographics, all of the momentum, the energy, the the generational shifts, everything was, the mindset was moving towards people accepting the sport of soccer or football in America. And because of that, we were trying to be pioneers. I mean, a little bit ahead of the curve to create something that this new generation can, can get into. And I really learned what it was to create a, a league in a country uh, where which is pretty saturated with other leagues, and I think that's kind of that belief that the forty of us had, plus all the owners, plus the heads of all the clubs had, has given me so much optimism in my life, and has given me because we've started building out a, a, a roadmap. The other part of it is just strategy. Um, I think when you walk into a role, sometimes you just are managing and you're doing. What I learned at MLS is how to be strategic about things that you do. So it's not about what you do in the next 365 days. It's about building a plan for the next 10 years and then every single day uh, collaborating, uh, you know, to make sure that happens. And that was something that I saw happen while I was there. And I think um, all of those things were kind of blessings as well. So it was a, it was a really, really good experience. I loved it. Uh, I still love thinking about it and, and connecting with all my friends back there. I just, I just want to uh, scratch a bit into the, what you said about the strategy. Um, what was the what was the process like in terms of developing uh, a long term strategy at the MLS? Did it kind of start off with a, a vision for you know soccer in the US in 2020, and then what do we need to do to work work backwards from there? How how did the MLS go about developing strategy at that point in time? 
you know, there was a, a, as I mentioned before, a number of very, um, you know, intelligent sports business people involved in in the the blueprint of MLS. Uh, Mark Abbott uh, was one of them, a person who kind of created the blueprints. Neil Galati, um, you know, eventually Commissioner Garber has done a lot over there, and many others. Uh, billionaires like Robert Kraft and Lamar Hunt, uh, late Lamar Hunt, uh, Phil Antschutz. So these are all individuals who have owned other professional sports teams or, and have done extremely extremely well in business um, outside of sport as well, which is where they re- got their money uh, and earned their money as well. Now, what they knew was that you look at the NASL, there's an amazing film out there called Once in a Lifetime. I think it's on, on – um, on YouTube, you should watch it. It's about the New York Cosmos and the rise of the NASL and when Pele came over and Chingali and Beckenbauer and all that. And you see what happens is that you end up spending a lot. There's a lot of excitement, but that sustainability is not there. That foundation is not solid. And what MLS did was it, it kind of learned a lot from the mistakes of the NASL and said that we need to control our spending. We need to um, just control everything as much as we can to ensure sustainability and longevity of the league. And what they did was they started with a single entity model. And they also started saying that over time, you got to want to, we're going to focus on three things. We're going to focus on owners that are vested in the long run that are, that have the money and also have the interest and passion. We're going to look at um, what they call soccer specific stadiums. So although we're all playing in American football grounds or other things right now, Eventually, everyone's going to have their own stadium. And three is strategic expansion. And strategic expansion, as you see in MLS, has 25 teams on it in its 25th year, I believe, right now. And they've done extremely well with expanding into new markets. And when you're sitting in the league office in 2002, it was a very bleak picture. Teams were contracting Miami Fusion and Tampa Bay Mutiny. There was a lot that wasn't going our way. But then you realize that these people who've invested in the league, they are seeing the next 10, 15, 20, 25 years. And the crazy thing is now when you look back, it's 2020. I look back at 2002, Neil, and going, I just got to believe them because they seem like they know what they're doing. And I'm like, damn, they were right. Everything that they said was going to happen actually happened. And when I go back to the MLS All-Star Game or MLS Cups or I go to any games and I'm watching LAFC and LA Galaxy playing in a packed stadium with crazy supporters and, um, you know, great players on the pitch, you have, Zlatan Ibrahimovic, and you have people like in the past Gerard or Chicharito or Carlos Vela, and then you have all these good young American players. You're like, wow, this is working, and it did or worked. It's not even working. So the answer to that is that those three factors of strategic expansion, owner, good owners, and uh, soccer-specific stadiums were like the the heart of the street strategy, and the rest of it is just doing good work on a day-to-day basis. I'd be keen to hear sort of. It- like comparing, because people always compare the MLS and the A-League a little bit and sort of how the MLS has just kind of blown up a bit and the A-League, I think, you know, um, obviously we've had all these star players but maybe, as you said, they didn't get the core right yet because we're not we're not really seeing those crowds come out and I guess there's a lot of competition there but it'd be interested to hear sort of what you think the, the difference is in, is in sort of what those, well, how the strategies sort of planned out for both of those. Yeah, yeah, it's something I look at the A League quite a bit. Uh, I I haven't been to a match, but I've, I've spent some time. Um, actually, I went to a Sydney FC match in Australia, which is interesting. They, they played, and it's a story I might tell later to get to it. But um, 
I, I've been following the A-League in terms of what players are going over there uh, to your country and, and how it's been. We also hosted Melbourne City FC in India. Our company put together a preseason friendly with Girona and um, uh, Kerala Blasters in Melbourne City, which was quite interesting. Um, one of the differences is this, is that MLS, the, the designated player rule or the marquee player rule started in 2007 with David Beckham. And I feel that it was the right time because if MLS brought David Beckham or a player of his kind of profile in at 2003, uh, while millions would be tuning in to watch Beckham and, mil- and maybe thousands would be showing up to the stadium to watch Beckham and you know they would be seeing maybe not the great, best of infrastructure around him. The stadiums wouldn't be, they would be seeing players who are the other 21 players around David, not as good as him maybe, and maybe not even close to what people would hope to see around players of that caliber. And they would really just be seeing even the broadcast and everything else wasn't at the same level. What I like about what MLS did in terms of the designated players that have come in, they've started come in, coming in when the stadiums were, are, are, are much more conducive to a better experience, both on TV and in the stadium. The players that are around David Beckham or, or any, any player like Kaká or David Villa or Figo or anybody else who's come over, you see that those players are a mixture of good Europeans, good Latin American players, and good American players. And you see a lot of homegrown players that are coming up as well. So it's, it's just uh, that, that product is, is kind of around that player because ultimately you're going to be judged on your product, right? You could have a, you can have Maradona and Pele and Beckham and Rooney and everyone else filling a stadium. But ultimately, if the product is not good, people are going to stop showing up. What MLS really focused on was the product around the game and the product in on the pitch. And it took it takes time. And I think that's where in India, sometimes we try to make uh, ourselves the Premier League overnight with, with football, let's say. But what reality is, is that sometimes it takes 15, 20, 25 years. And you just got to have the patience to keep investing and see it through. I can't speak about the business operations of the A-League because I'm not as involved in it. But I could just say that I just feel that MLS, in terms of the strategy, in terms of also the self-reflection and awareness, that saying, hey, this is where we're at. This is where we want to go. Let's take baby steps to get there. They, I feel like MLS just did it really well. And not trying to be the NBA, not trying to be the Premier League or La Liga, but trying to be a better version of MLS. And, and I, I, I appreciate that. And I try to bring a lot of that learning over here as well. That's fascinating. I think there's plenty of leagues around the world that could learn a lot about expansion from, from the MLS. We're, uh, we're going to jump forward a fair bit from uh, your first job in New York to your, your current job in Mumbai. Can you tell us a bit about India on track and the Global Institute of Sport Business? You know, who are they? What do they do? And uh, what's your involvement been like there over the last three and a bit years? Yeah, sure. So uh, when I moved to India in 2009, I had this dream of um, and this mission more than a dream of connecting the East and West through football. I just felt that there was a lot that the West can learn from the East uh, about things. And, and there's a lot of business opportunities and other thing, uh, other opportunities to expand in the East. And I just felt like the East can really learn a lot from, especially in my, my, my experience of the MLS of how to grow a league sustainably and strategically. Um, India on track is the perfect place for somebody like me because it's a, it's a sports management and marketing company. It's run by professional people, people who many have studied abroad, come back to India uh, to grow 
the sports ecosystem. Uh, our company has a couple of verticals. It's, it's basically a full service company, but its focus is training and development programs, which are like grassroots and pay to play programs that we offer around India uh, in many, many cities around the country. We have a digital marketing uh, vertical. We do a lot of digital marketing work for European uh, companies and leagues and franchises that want to connect with the Indian audience through Hindi or through more culturally sensitive and culturally in, uh, engaging sort of messaging. We have an events team. Uh, we do a number of big events. And then we have um, an IP creation team. Um, and then we have an edu- sports education team, which I'll talk about. Our, our clients are great because it's what, what's great is that I can be in India and I can, our clients are Premier League. Our, we run the La Liga office in India. So we do a lot of their partnerships and just any engagements and grassroots programs. We, our partner, our, our clients are Major League Baseball. So, you know, we, we have a whole team of people in our part of IOT that are helping to grow the sport of baseball. So it's really weird for me growing up playing baseball and now being in India and helping to grow the sport of baseball. We have clients like Apollo Tire and we help them leverage the uh, Manchester United partnership, um, Roland Garros, um, and in many Indian organizations as well. And, what happened, and this is great for you guys, given what you're doing with sports grad, is that while in India, people are super passionate about sports, especially in these larger towns. It's amazing in larger cities. I can have conversations about the Premier League in India with my students here that are the exact same conversations I'd be having about the Premier League in London in terms of the, the, the depth of knowledge, the passion they have for the clubs. People consume the West so much over here and they consume sport. And then IPL, of course, is in cricket is, you know, these are our gods and people are really glued to the TV when they're watching a test series or watching a great T20 match as well. But then that doesn't convert to professionalism all the time. So when we needed to hire people, I've been in India now over a decade and I've worked in many different companies. And when I needed to hire people, um, I struggled and not just me, I'm speaking on behalf of many of us in the industry. We could not figure out who, who to hire because who had the right mix of passion, of professionalism and attitude in terms of the attitude to be able to withstand a lot of the unknown of the industry and a lot of the chaos sometimes and be able to still create and be effective. And yes, the pay wasn't always great at first and other things. So people have to deal with all of that. And we looked at a lot of people coming out of institutes and I'm not going to like, you know, nothing against them, but we didn't see quality coming out of a lot of institutes because they're more academic focused within industry focused in in the industry indian sports industry it evolves on a quarterly basis almost it's changing all the time so you need somebody who's has their finger on the pulse and is able to move with the industry so we said you know what why do we wait for somebody else to do it let's just create our own postgrad program let's create our own let's we already have all these great clients our friends are all leaders in the industry so why don't we create a program, a 15-month program, which is fully focused on giving our students the real-world uh, sports industry journey as much as we can. So our faculty will all be people with 10 to 25 years of experience in sports. Our um, industry projects will all be great consultancy projects that are happening throughout the year. We will have um, two, two to three months of extensive communication skills and acting classes and um, neuro-linguistic programming, meditation, yoga, all of these things that ground you because it's not easy to work in sports in general and it's definitely not easy in India. So how do you have emotional regulation? 
How do you express yourself with uh, power and effectiveness? How do you uh, engage somebody in communication? If you're somebody who grew up in a small town in India, and now you're trying to present to the chief, chief executive of the Premier League about the India opportunity, how do you do that without losing confidence, with staying connected to what your message is and, and knowing how to do it? And how do you engage that person? We teach our students all of this through facilitators who come in from life skills and development. And then we also have our sports industry people as well. The final thing on this is that well, it's an academic program. So we didn't want to lose sight of that. So we tied up with the University of Massachusetts, Amherst, who's always offered one of the best programs in the world. They come over to India and they deliver 100 hours of sports management education to our students. Um, these are PhDs. So no longer does an Indian have to technically go to the U.S. or Europe or Australia to get world-class education in sports management. They can if they want, because there's a lot of opportunities in all of these countries, as you all know. But they, if they want to stay in India and be part of the growth of either the global industry or the Indian industry, they can do it through GISB now, because we're offering all the, the attributes that I think that some of the best programs in the world offer as well. I think that's a uh, extremely progressive approach to, to studying uh, in the 20th century. I think the, the things you describe from a practical point of view that are so essential to having success in the industry uh, are pretty groundbreaking, not Sure, I've heard of any other places that, you know, go to that length to, to teach those sort of things. So, um, and to learn them from, you know, people such as yourself who have got, you know, 10 to 15 years experience in the industry as well is a pretty unique opportunity. Thanks. Yeah, it, it, it's a lot of fun, honestly, because, and I, I can't believe more agencies haven't done this because it's almost like having, uh, so our, our, our classroom, our campus is inside of our Mumbai office for India on track. So it's imagine IMG or Octagon or, you know, some of the WMG or Washman and these bigger in their, in their heyday, or even now having a campus inside of their office where it's still quiet, where the students can learn. It's still professional. They're not getting too involved, but the students are waking up every day, seeing the, the energy and the vibe and the, the of what's happening in an industry, in an agency office, in an agency office, you know what you know what it's like. There's pitch presentations that go on all night. There's people, random people stopping by. There's arguments. There's love. There's a little bit of everything, and we want our students to experience all of it because when they walk, they get out of the the, the, the program and they get into the industry. The, their, their DNA, their cells have shifted to think like a business, an, an entrepreneur in a way in the industry versus a, a student who goes through their two year program or twelve month program. They learn, they do some exams, and then they have to shift complete environments, you know, totally different environments into an industry office, which not it rarely resembles what a college campus looks like. So, again, nothing against what I, I'm a product of an MBA in sports management program at a university in the U.S., so I'm a big believer in that setup. But I just thought, as you rightly said, we needed to kind of break the mold a little bit and, and change, change the way that things are done. So um, to, to meet the demands of the industry, but also to meet what the requirements of the students who you're preparing to be a, a leader in this industry as well. I think that, that that's so relevant because I think a lot of people will go through uni and probably do a, um, a work experience type unit in their last year. And I guess you probably spend a, a small chunk of your time, maybe a day a week or today's week at, some, at an office somewhere. And you're sort of expected to learn how to function in that sort of environment where it sounds like 
you know, students in your program are kind of um, they're exposed to that all, all the time, which can only sort of benefit you. So, no, it sounds um, sounds awesome. Um, for um, for our listeners who may not sort of understand um, the sporting landscape of India, could you give us sort of a quick sort of snapshot of of the sports industry in its current form? Yes, <laughs> it's a. I'll, I'll try to be as concise as possible with this because there's a lot to talk about. But um, I'll just share that, yeah, you know, for many years, uh, you know, after 1983, when we won the, the, the World Cup in cricket at Lourdes um, against the West Indies, you know, from, from 1983 onwards, cricket was it. Um, everything else was not even secondary. It was kind of bottom of the, the ladder and cricket was at the top. And, and you see it with the kind of athletes that have come out of you know, the cricketers that we have in this country that we produced over the years. And then when um, the IPL came in 2008, when it was established, and, and the, it really brought the business of sport into India. Because up until then, it was really the BCCI um, did what they did with sponsorships and, and, you know, other revenue opportunities. But IPL opened the eyes of so many people in India that, hey, you know what, professional sport can really work over here uh, if, if done well. So it's no surprise from 2008 to 2020, every sport or so many sports has its own professional league. So you have two leagues in, in football with I-League I and, and ISL. You have Pro Kabaddi League. You have um, the Pro Volleyball League, which is opened up, Pro Badminton League. Uh, and, and it goes on and on and on. So in so one aspect of Indian sports are these professional leagues. But the difference is that from the U.S. or, say, Europe is that these leagues are like short. You know, look at the IPL. It's about two months long or so. Look at um, ISL used to be three months. Now it's five months. Pro Kabaddi League, which gets 400 million viewers, is, you know, a matter of maybe weeks uh, over two seasons. Um, I think the ultimate table tennis league is like three weeks. So... What those leagues are playing off of more than ticket sales like, or more than merchandise or more than a lot of your traditional revenue streams is purely broadcast. Um, because India, you know, there's, I think, something like 700 million or 300 million TV households. There's 700 million or so people who have access to Internet and they have smartphones. A lot of this content now is on OTT platforms, so you can just get it on your, your phone. So what these leagues are playing at is trying to get as many people to watch it as possible so they can, they can get revenue off sponsorship, um, primarily through sponsorship and, and broadcast deals at times as well, unless the broadcaster are part of it. So that's one whole aspect of it that's going on. That's more public-facing. The other aspect of Indian sports is the whole tech, tech side. And that's the side that I think is most exciting. Even though I'm a traditional sports lover, I love to go to my live sports events. I love to watch my matches on TV. But the tech side is crazy right now. Um, Dream 11. Dream 11 is a, is a fantasy sports writer. They were just a bunch of guys like you, love sport, enterprising, smart people, got together, put together a good fantasy sports platform uh, years ago. That, that fantasy sports platform is worth $2.5 billion now and has gotten investors from you know, the, some of the biggest investors in the world who are putting money in. And what it's done is it's opened up the eyes of so many other investors that are looking at investing in sports. And so fantasy, and eventually it's not legal right now, but sports betting. Um, and and this is, these are two areas that are really going to change um, the entire sports ecosystem in India because it's going to bring in a lot more money. 
it's going to be bringing a lot more opportunity for people to engage with sport without having to be connected to a professional team, but they can engage with sport all over the world because these, these, these um, companies have the rights to so many different leagues where they can use their likeness of the players or the brand of the uh, clubs or whatever it might be. So in India, it's really cheap to go online, right? It's like 26 cents for one GB of data. It's the cheapest in the world. So there's this whole other, like there's 1.3 billion people in this country and such a large portion of that will get engaged in sport through their phones, uh, primarily through their phones. And it's going to be done through fantasy. It's going to be done through betting. Eventually it's going to be done through uh, watching some sport on TV. So I think that's the space that a lot of international investors are looking at getting into because the numbers are just unreal and the infrastructure is there and the digital infrastructure and people have not fully tapped into it as well as they could. That's very interesting to see how the uh, weight of broadcast revenue has influenced the uh, lengths of the different leagues and how it just kind of burst league after burst league after burst league, which is, is cool. It makes for exciting tournaments all year round, I'm sure. Um, And uh, I'm glad you mentioned dream 11. Um, we, Ryan and I are very familiar with them. They've had a bit to do with uh, Cricket Australia over the years and had a bit to do with the, the, the relationship there where, where they ran, I believe, our BBL and WBBL fantasy leagues for, for Cricket Australia. So, um, yeah, they've got a presence in, in Australia too. So I did not know they were worth $2 billion. So that's, that's massive. Um, Neil, in terms of applying for jobs in India, what are some of the differences uh, in regards to the processes and the uh, the expectations, you know, kind of based on the culture? Yeah, you know, when I started this chat with you all, I was talking about, I think Ryan asked about what it's like working in India, and I was sharing about it's a mixture of East and West. And it's it's no different with, with hiring, I'd say. So on one hand, there are proper job descriptions, which you'd be surprised many years ago that there weren't. So there's proper, um, you know, JDs, there's, um, very professional people who are now in, in positions at agencies and at league offices and at clubs that are used to the traditional um, pathway of hiring people. So on that hand, on that side, it's good. But ultimately, we're still the East, right? I'm still sitting in Asia right now. Now, Asia, one of the things that, I mean, there's three things I'll, I'll, I'll talk about. One is relationships, two is references, and three is uh, value, value add. So, relationships, um, you need to have built a relationship to get a good job out here. You need to, so for, I'll take my example. I, I was the director of Major League Soccer's fan development department. I am Indian by origin. I, um, you know, was ready to come over to India in 2009 to work here full time and contribute to the Indian uh, football industry. But people weren't going to hire me at that point. I had to take two personal trips to India on my, you know, for three weeks at a time and just to scope what's happening in the country, meet people at Adidas and Nike and the All India Football Federation and shake a lot of hands and give out soccer balls and, you know, just go out for drinks with people until uh, all that movement opened something up. So imagine, you know, if I'm struggling and I'm ready to come over and Indian football was just getting going and I had a great reputation in the U.S., it, you know, it, not much has changed where even if one of you two who come in with your experience and your your ideas and your network, if you wanted to work in India, it doesn't mean that right away somebody's not going to hire you, but I'm just saying that there's a good chance that somebody say, you know what, Ryan, Ruben, just come over. Let's go out for coffee. Let's just chat. Let's understand you more. Let me see if we, our values align. 
So one is build a relationship. So I always tell international students, especially if you really want to work in the East, just get, sometimes you just have to buy that ticket. It may make no sense uh, getting on a flight in flying all the way to say China or Japan or South Korea or Thailand. But if you're serious about it, just do it because if you're going to sit on Google and LinkedIn and hope that somebody in uh, uh, another part of the whole world is going to just hire you based on whatever they're hearing, it ain't happening. So that's one. References, big. We are a trust. People uh, trust each other completely once you've built that, that your inner circle, right? And so once you're in the inner circle, if I pick up the phone now, if somebody's in my inner circle and I pick up the phone and I tell him or her, you know what? Ruben's a fantastic guy. Genuine, hardworking, uh, you know, really, uh, he's, he's, gonna, he's just going to be on the ball. That, that person on the other side is going to put all the other CVs aside, or at least a lot of the CVs, and start and look at yours a lot more closely and give you uh, a lot more than the time of the day, because that's just how this works. Yeah, <laughs> we've uh, we've we've got we've got this recorded. If I ever need to come back in and reference it, I mean, yeah, I, 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 work in India. Theoretically, uh, hypothetically, <laughs> Ruben, I'm just I'm joking, I'm joking. Uh, yeah, Whether that's true it. or not, we're not we're not entirely sure. But no, continue, Neil. That's that's fantastic. <laughs> and then the last thing I'll say is value add. So what? And Ruben, I know this is something you touched on as well quite a bit, and and, and I know you believe in is maybe in the U.S. There's positions that need filling. So they're, and it's at that base level, they're saying, okay, we want a sports management grad with one or two years of experience in sales. And, um, and we're looking for those type of people. So if you meet those criteria, you have a better chance of getting that job. In India, it's a lot less structured. So what they're not look, they're not looking for like, okay, you need a postgrad degree in sports and you need three years of experience in finance. They might write all that on the job description to fill up the lines. But ultimately, what they want to know is, hey, do you know my vision? Do you know my objectives of the company? And do you understand? And how can you add value to my company? And I know that's a lot to ask for somebody who's 23 years old who's coming out of a program. But the reality is, when the industry is so nascent, there's so many gaps that can be filled. And I, I always recommend our students like take a hard look at your your, your passion, your your purpose, and your superpowers. And, and figure out how in the heck you're going to help Dream 11 because they haven't figured everything out. How are you in the heck you're going to help India on track? We're not geniuses. We haven't figured everything out. So if you're going to come in and tell me that, even if I don't like your idea, but at least the intent is going to give me uh, a lot more, you're going to get a lot more of my attention than you and than the other people who are calling me on or writing on LinkedIn saying, sir, sir, can I have a job? So passion or sorry, relationships, references, and value add. Those are the three things to get a job here in India. Comprehensive three three things there. Uh, no doubt, Rose will put them in the show notes. I would imagine, and also probably Instagram as well. Um, so, Neil, the, the sports industry in India has become a lot more sophisticated, as, as we've sort of mentioned here in, in recent times. What have been some of those main changes that have that have led to the progress that it's made? You know, the, the professional leagues definitely impacted because what happens is when you start having for example, let's say IMG Reliance, who's invested in um, in the Indian football industry for 15 years when they came in at 2011, in 2011, and they invested in basketball for 30 years in terms of getting the marketing rights. So when you have the com- companies like this getting in, what happens is then their network starts to also invest in sports. So if IMG Reliance invests in building the Indian Super League, well, then they're going to get big companies and big Bollywood stars or um, other owners of large companies to also get on in. And when you start doing that, 
there's more money coming in, but also more professionals coming in as well. Um, the I League for a long time, which is a great league, but it's it was a bit unprofessional in terms of the management. It was very passionate in terms of the kind of the um, the execution, but the, the overall management it didn't have a lot of professionals there. There wasn't a lot of money there, so you weren't attracting the best in the business. But um, when you start getting the Indian Super League, the ITL, the Pro Kabaddi League, it's when Star Sports start putting in the amount of money that Star Sports has in sports. When you have uh, Sony doing what they're doing, when I look around my my Rolodex now, I'm like, damn, these there's a lot of really intelligent people, um, you know, within my network that are working in really cool jobs in sports. Even people like Vivek Setia, who's the uh, managing director of and founder of um, of India on Track. He's a Cornell MBA grad. He's come back to India with the sole intent to grow Indian sports. So you have all of these and many other managing directors who are at that same caliber of intelligence and education. So I, I believe that uh, these professional leagues and has really made a difference. I also believe that technology, um, as I've said before, so I won't go into it too much, but because the tech, the tech space was very big in IT and for many years in India, and now it's really shifted into the sports space as well. And you've seen a lot more startups and incubation incubators and accelerators that are coming up trying to get young kids coming out of IIMs, which are the top management programs in India, to get into sports versus going into something that wasn't as um, maybe they're excited about as well. So all of these shifts, it comes down to human resource. Uh, when you And it's the same thing on the pitch as well off the pitch. When you have your best athletes going into a particular sport you're starting you're going to see you're going to see growth there right when the best athletes in america start playing football over american football or basketball you'll start to see the national team do even better when you in india when the smartest minds are getting into sports business versus it banking medical law or all the other traditionally accepted industries you're going to start to see the industry grow we're trying to do our little part at gisb but I know many other people are doing their role to try to get our best minds to actually see sport as a viable career option versus seeing it as like something they do on the side when they're bantering their friends. That, that's a really common theme that I've heard talking to people in India is that now they, their friends, their families are starting to regard sport as a really you know, possible and realistic career path and that people aren't afraid to go after anymore because it's got that – uh, new credibility attached to it. Um, so, Neil, given some of that rapid development over the last decade in particular, what are some of the things that the East can teach the West? You know, I, it's a great question, uh, Ruben, and it's something I think about a lot because especially when I go out to the West, I never want it to be that I just take from the West now. Like, oh, send me a like, send me that plan of how you, you put together that league because I want to copy and paste that in India or let me know your youth development plans because I love it and I, I want to bring it to some coaches over here. I want to also give back to the West as much as I can. And I think one of the best things that the, the East has taught me and the East can teach the West is how to create something in a chaotic environment. And, you know, I don't know if you've both have been to India in the past. Ruben, I don't believe you have. Ryan, have you been out here before? Unfortunately it's, not. Okay, <laughs> I won't hopefully, do that. Hopefully, I'm, I'm hosting both of you out here uh, uh, whenever it's safe to, to do that. But um, it's one. I mean, you know, I'm sure you know a lot of people who've been out to India. It's one of these countries that whenever somebody comes back, they're gonna ha- they'll never say, "Yeah, it was okay." 
They'll, they'll have so much to say about it. They'll either say, oh, my God, there were so much cars. There was traffic. It smelled. My stomach hurt. They'll be like, oh, my God, how beautiful. It was so gorgeous. I went to this wedding, and there's so many colors and smells. Oh, my God, the food. It was so great. At Taj Mahal, I cried. So people, this this country gives you so much sensual pleasures and sometimes sensual other things that aren't great because it's just, it's just coming all at you at once. Now, working in the business side, a sports industry is no different. It's not that you just go into some bubble and everything, there's all these computers and everything's perfect and you're like, okay, now we have to uh, put together a FIFA U17 World Cup and it's going to be so streamlined. It is going to be chaotic. It is going to be intense. There's going to be a lot of egos at play. There's going to be a lot of people with different agendas um, of, of getting into that particular investment of that league, of that sport. And you have to find a way to create that and, and create something inside of that. Whereas in the U.S. or Europe or Australia, it's not that it's easy by any means, but it's kind of more structured and organized. So I think there's certain things that Indian um, sports business leaders have done to be able to create in a lot of chaotic chaotic you know environment Neil, what's um and touching sort of going forward now what's um what's one position or, or a project that sort of stands out for you as a as a formative experience in your career so far i mean it's it's a combat answer but the one i'm in right now honestly um uh, gisd is it it's a consolidation of my last 20 years working in sports and even the and even the five years before then, trying to figure out a way to get into sport into major league soccer. Because if I think about my life, I mean, I've been blessed with this really brilliant life where I got to spend my twenties in New York City, well, my my teens in uh, in UC Santa Barbara in California, you know, studying sports business, having a great time, um, you know, also a little bit of time in London, and spending my twenties in New York City, really growing a professional sport in a country that's my own. And also doing a lot of personal and self-development. Then I came over to India and I've spent the last eight, nine years getting to kind of get my hands in so many aspects of the Indian sports ecosystem and bringing over the West into the East as well. And in the meantime, having my own spiritual awakenings and connections and um, doing a lot of like yoga and meditation and Vipassana courses and um, Reiki and trying all these cool things, going through the Himalayas and sitting in caves for a little while, like things that I would only read about in books or see in movies and actually being in this country and doing. And I always thought like, and then I, I, I like to write a lot and I reflect on all the things I've learned. So I guess what GISB provides me is the platform to shape the next generation of sports industry leaders um, in a way that I feel could be best suited for their holistic growth and development. The other thing I like is that all of my friends in the industry get to teach. So imagine if you're hanging out with your friends, people who you respect, who are doing, who are pioneers in the global sports industry and the Indian sports industry. And then they're coming to your campus every day. And they're like for, for periods of a time and they're teaching your students what they, their own 20 years of experience. And you're all engaging with each other on a very, in a very positive platform and environment. So and you're also developing your friends as teachers because there's a big difference between being a guest lecturer and a, and a faculty, as you probably would be aware. Being a guest lecturer is you come in, you're like a fun uncle. You just say some things, you tell some stories about meeting Ronaldinho or something else, and then you're like, all right, out of here. But you, as a as a as a as a faculty, 
you have to engage the students over 8, 12, 14, 16, 25, 30 hours. You have to grade assignments. So I'm taking people who are managing directors of agencies or CEOs of IPL teams or maybe even um, head of marketing of Chelsea FC, and we're working together to actually turn them into an industry practitioner slash faculty. And so that is cool because you're giving them some opportunity to do something that most of us want to do is give back in a meaningful way and, and do it on a regular basis as well. So for me, GISB is the, it's the, cul- not the culmination, but the consolidation of my entire life. And I, I feel honestly, truly blessed that I get to do this every single day. It is by far way more than a job or even a, a career for me. It is my life. And I, I feel like I, really am the luckiest guy in the world that I get to do this every single day. I think uh, you, myself and Ryan are all cut from the, the same cloth in, in that regard. Um, you know, this whole podcast is about helping get people jobs in the sports industry and that's awesome to see what you're doing over in India through GISB using your wealth of experience far more than what we've had in our time uh, to be able to have an impact over there. Uh, we've got one last question for you, Neil. If you were starting out again as a graduate today, what's one thing you would tell yourself? <laughs> it, the last question's always got to be the one that stumps me. I, I can answer any question you want. But this one is actually like my blimp right brain just went. Um, I'm thinking back to creepy Neil Shaw standing across the street from uh, from 110 East 42nd Street MLS League office. And what would I tell that kid? Um, I would I tell him it, it's a it's a it's a it's a journey. It's not a destination. I've, I've achieved CEO. I've had times where I've had ridiculous salaries. I've had times where I've lived in a tiny, tiny mini, we wouldn't even call studio and not known if I'm going to have a job the next day. And I've been in dark places in India, dark places in New York and dark places on my business trips. And I've been in sitting in Hawaii with David Beckham and putting on grassroots events and sitting at uh, suites and hospitality things at Enfield or other things. And at no point did I ever feel like I've made it. Okay, now I'm done. Now now it's okay. Now everything's done. I realized that you never actually hit the destination. Even if I made a million dollars, it's not that I want more and I'm hungry. It's just that there's no point the mind says, okay, I'm done. You can acknowledge your journey. You can acknowledge your current situation. You can acknowledge, um, hey, you know what, dude, I've, I'm pretty proud of myself. That was pretty awesome. I can't believe I made it to India and I did this and that, or I'm a director at the age of 27 of a professional soccer league. But the reality is the, the human, by human nature, by human psychology, you just keep, you just keep on going. You keep evolving as a human being and you keep wanting to satisfy the things that you're most excited about that drive you. So what I tell young, creepy 21 year old, 22 year old Neil Shah is dude, just relax, enjoy the journey. Just keep working hard, be sincere You'll never get there, so just enjoy every step of the way. I think that's a very sound advice for, for everybody listening, no matter no matter who you are. And I don't know about you, Ryan, but I was ref- reflecting personally and could see uh, that uh, your, ex- your experience resonating a lot with me because uh, um, having gone through a lot of different experiences, sometimes you lose sight of um, why you do it as well. So to keep that in mind at the forefront of your thinking, just allows you to kind of take a breath and enjoy it at the same time. Fantastic. No, I appreciate that. 
We will wrap it up there. Neil, thank you so much for your time. It's been awesome to hear about your experience starting off at the MLS as a as a young 22 to 27-year-old and seeing how you've been able to carry your experience through a whole range of different opportunities in India to now kind of leaving in a place where you're so well positioned to, to give back to those trying to form their own paths. It was extremely interesting from our point of view to, to learn that the landscape of um, sport in India and some of the nuances of, of getting a job over there. I think, um, you know, if sports grad fails, I might just buy a ticket to India and plan a few meetings and then and see how we go, take that leap of faith, as, as you said. But um, um, it's been extremely insightful chatting to you today. So thank you again for giving us your time. Uh, thanks so much, Ruben and Ryan. Uh, Ruben, I, I didn't mention it earlier, but uh, for all those listeners out there, Ruben did a fantastic uh, guest lecture for our students. He was the fun uncle, but uh, very inspiring and and. Uh, insightful and gave a lot of practical information. But love love the work that you both are doing. Keep it up. Um, we need more people like you out there doing this kind of work, and I, I really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks very much. Hopefully, uh, as a fun uncle, we can do it in person next time. Absolutely. We'd love love to have you out here in Mumbai and get to experience all the, the madness that is this beautiful country. Ryan, I think we've got a, a few sports grad tours to, to organize now to Switzerland, India, the yeah. US. I've, um, I've just booked out we'll probably let's say we'll rule out 21 that probably travel's gone but 22 we'll just book that out for the season I'll, I'll put in my leave now um and just take the 365 so sounds good to me mate yeah perfect well, on, on location uh, sports grad podcast is the way to go absolutely well stay tuned for that if you guys want to come on tour with ryan and i but for now thank you very much for listening a reminder to please hit subscribe if you haven't already so you don't miss out on any new episodes Please drop us a rating and leave us a review. It really does mean so much and helps us put together the show for you with more sensational guests such as Neil. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the SportsGrad podcast. If you need help with your sports career, head to sportsgrad.com.au and download our free ebook today. And if you've enjoyed the episode, please give us a tag on socials at SportsGrad. 